الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم ما بعد We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing formations of the secular Talal Asad, we are on page 56, Democratic Liberalism and Myth. Who's reading? Democratic Liberalism and Myth. <coughs> I begin this chapter with the view of radical anthropologists who criticize the modern liberal state for pretending to be secular and rational when in fact it, is, it was heavily invested in myth and violence. Okay, so that's a pretty interesting point, right? That the idea, okay, so when we speak of liberalism, we're basically saying there's no taboos. And no taboos in terms of what to discuss, what to explore. Mm-hmm. Okay? So like when we're saying the liberal arts, we're saying that you're, you, it's not a parochial um, system where it's religious oriented and it's not like in a, a parochial system, like you study this and then you study this and then you study this and then you study that, right? It's you study anything and everything. Right. Of course, in math, you have to have a tertib in the sense you have to have steps because you can't do calculus unless you know algebra. Right. But meaning you can get into Aristotle without knowing anything and just jump right into it. But the idea being liberal means free. Everything is uh, accessible. But part of the theory <coughs> is that, you know, when it's religious, it restricts you and it tends to be like we've been discussing, full of mythology and promotes violence. And he's saying, okay, you know, you have these anthropologists who criticize these secular, these, these liberal states uh, because they pretend to be secular, but they're full of mythology, and they tend to be rational, and rational means civilized, basically. But they are still very much violent. And with mythology, you're talking about, like, the mythology of... Um like, it could even include mythology of, like, countries. Like, That's exactly what For example, like, about. we have, like, in America, there, I was reading something about uh, California, and it was, like, it was basically, it said something along the lines of, like, basically, there's this idea that, like, when you get to California, you know, it's, like, under the sky, it has to work out here, because here we run out of content. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, That's like, absolutely part of mythology. Or even think of, like, when you go to D.C., you know, the fact that you have um, the, you know, these memorials for all these presidents okay, um, that are not that different than what you found for Greek gods way back, you know, in Greece. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, even in terms of structure, the, the architecture is the same. The architecture is almost, almost the same. Or think of something like Arlington National Cemetery, where if you die for your country, you are then honored by putting into the, being put in this grave. This is all mythology. Yeah. Think about how different it would be if in American society they cremated all the dead, right? And then so you're not going to have those cemeteries. Yeah. Um, and with all of that is part of mythology. Yeah. I then proceeded to problematize the secular as a category by investigating its transformations. <coughs> I now conclude with a contemporary liberal political theorist who argues that a secular liberal state depends on depends crucially for its public virtues, equality, tolerance, liberty, on political myth, that is, on origin narratives that provide a foundation for its per- political values and a coherent framework for its public and private morality. This brings us back to secularism as a political doctrine and its connections with the sacred and the profane. Mm-hmm. 
Margaret Canavan maintains that if liberalism gives up its illusion of being the party of reason, it will be better placed to defend its political values against its conservative and radical critics. The central principles of liberalism, she reminds us, rest on assumptions about the nature of mankind and the nature of society that are frequently questioned. All men are created equal. Everyone possesses human rights, and so on. But no dispassionate observer of the human condition would find these descriptions proportioned Propositions. Find these descriptions, propositions, unproblematic. Descriptive propositions, unproblematic, says Canavan. For men and women are not, in fact, equal. They do not all exercise human rights in the world as we know it. Can okay. oh. So this is uh, so. So one point here is that okay, all these you know supposedly liberal values, you know, all men are created equal. Um, you know, uh, what was the other one? Everyone possesses human rights. Okay, she's saying that okay, no one's gonna find this you know, problematic, okay, that, uh, wait, no, okay, no one is going to have an issue with it in principle, but when you put it into practice, okay, um, you know, men and women are not equal, okay, people are not equal by race, right, you know, like we're all taught in grade school, uh, when we're go or high school, when we're going through the whole Declaration of Independence, that, right, all men are created equal, but how, uh, how are you given the dignity of being a human being in American society, with the ability to vote. Which means that at the time of the writing of this, and for well over a hundred years, women and black Americans by definition were not humans. Right? And so, so the point is that, okay, these are really wonderful ideas, but you don't practice it. Canavan points out that in the 18th century, the ideas that eventually formed the core of liberal thinking were attached to a distinctive conception of nature as deep reality. In the succeeding century, liberals invoked nature as a realm more real than the social world, an understanding that gave them grounds for optimism about political change. The terminology of natural rights referred not, to, not simply to what men and later women should have, but what they do in fact possess in the reality of human nature that lies beneath the distorted world as it now appears. However, for the conservative opponents of liberalism, the inequalities and injustices in the world directly reflected the unregenerate nature of human beings. Okay, so this is also interesting. So then part of the philosophy of these ideas is, on the one hand, you're looking at, all right, what is you know, the ideal society, okay? Uh, on the other hand, what is the nature of the person, okay? And so even when we're talking about the ideal society, we're basically talking about, you know, what is the ideal public space, okay? And then what is, what is the ideal person? And so some are of the opinion that, you know, human nature is, is evil. Others are of the opinion that human nature is good. But in all these, there's this sense of what we call natural rights and natural law. This thing that you can figure out uh, in terms of what is the best way to run society. Which implies, then, that there is some stability in human nature okay, that can lead us to design an ideal society. That's part of the theory of the Constitution. That, you know, religion gives you all these really wonderful things, but you can intuitively, with debate and discussion, figure out how to make a really effective society. What do you think? Were they, did they succeed? Effective for who? Okay, so that's a fair question. And so who would you say the Constitution is most effective for? Right. Speaking in 2017, uh, uh, as opposed to 1789. 1789 would be white men. Uh, it would be white men landowners. Here I would, now I, would, I mean, you could include white men, but I would say if you're rich, 
it works out really well for you. Yeah, but what about uh, what about if you're middle class? I think it. I don't think it hurts you if you're middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll say white and look well. Yeah, my thought. I mean, there's there's no uh, uh, right or wrong answer here. My thought is definitely if you have wealth, uh, but I think. Uh, if you have wealth, you can circumvent the, the Constitution, right? Um, and so I think the Constitution, I mean, uh, what were Jews? It doesn't hurt or something like that, right? Uh, so if you have wealth, you can figure out ways to bypass the Constitution. Proof of that is the current president. Right? Um, but uh, the people who I think benefit most in theory or who are protected most in theory with the Constitution are people who are of middle class middle-class background, right? And the people at the top, like I said, they could bypass it, and the people at the bottom, uh, I think they're more like victims of the Constitution. You know. Why did the ancestors of liberalism employ the terminology of nature in this way? Simply because in their thought, the idea of nature served to explain and justify things. To insist that manifest social inequalities and constraints were unnatural was in effect to invoke an alternative world, a mythical world that was natural because in it freedom and equality prevailed. But over time, their assumptions about the nature of man exposed liberals to uncomfortable criticism. This weakness emerged most fully at the turn of the 19th century with the rise of sociological realism and the simultaneous emergence of a new vision of nature as essentially violent and conflict-ridden. Okay, so, so what is the shift taking place? And some of this goes from Rousseau until later time, people. The idea being that, okay, your natural being is peaceful, is rational, is upright and all that, okay? And there are people who are evil, but usually that's when you when you add power to people. So part of the idea of the Constitution is to keep power in check. Separation of powers is to keep power in check. Protection, uh, like the First Amendment, um, is to give you the permission to dissent without uh, a fear of being attacked by power. The Second Amendment, right to bear arms, is also to protect you from power, right? And then going from there and there, all the Bill of Rights, you know, protection against searches and seizures and all that. Seizures. Seize. Seizures. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm thinking of seizures. Yeah, like, yeah. 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 So, so, the, uh, and so the idea being that that is, you know, all of this is that humanity is innately uh, upright when allowed to be free. This also goes into the idea of capitalism. That when you allow people to be free, then by way of competition and social interaction, people will be innately upright. Okay. Critics of capitalism will say, what are you, crazy? That capitalism is all about you know, usurping everybody else's wealth. But the idealists of capitalism will say, no, that's crony capitalism. That's not the real thing. Exactly the way we speak, right? The way we about speak about, about ISIS. Islam. Oh, Sorry? About or, Islam. Yeah, about Islam, meaning, you know, people say, well, look at ISIS, so look at all the different places you have Islam practice in the world, and we'll say, well, those are corruptions. Well, they're talking about men beating wives or or people making um, war on everybody. Um, And so we also often tend to be Islam idealists. Anyway, having said that, um, the point is that the, uh, the notion of human nature then began to change, that we are essentially violent, and it is in our nature to be conflict-ridden. Okay. And so then that, that calls into question, okay, this whole liberal idea that if you make everything free, um, 
you're actually allowing yeah, more destruction in the world. I'm sorry? Yeah, as opposed to stability. Yeah. What eventually resurrected the liberal idea of natural rights in the face of the vision of an essentially ruthless nature was not more effective theorization, but Europe's experience of its own horrors in the shape of Nazism and Stalinism in the first half of the 20th century. Thus, the liberal myth was facilitated, has facilitated the entire project of human rights that is so much a part of our contemporary world. And that brings with it a moralism wrongly said to be uncongenial to secularism as a system of political governance. Okay, so then what has happened? The first half of the 20th century is, uh, you know, an astonishingly bloody period of time. Okay? And that's, if you only include World War I and World War II, and then who knows how many other battles there are, you know, throughout that whole time. And, and so, but the uh, World War I, World War II, especially the latter one, led to the rise of this whole idea of human rights. Meaning, what does the state have to provide for you? Okay. But that becomes sort of a compensation. Like we started out saying, you know, people need to be free. Okay. But when you let people be free, okay, then, they, um, then they start killing each other. Okay. So, okay, well then let's set up human rights. And so, you know, on the one hand, we'll say this is a great accomplishment in human history, you know, having this declaration of human rights and such, and everyone agrees upon it. Um, but it is also kind of like a, a consequence of this whole theory of human nature that kind of went in the wrong way. See what we're saying? So it's like more, it was more something to like save face. Yeah. As opposed to the natural progression of like a liberal idea. Yeah, I mean... I'm trying to think of a better way to describe it and save face. Effectively, it's that, because, but I'm saying that they probably didn't think of themselves as saving face. They probably saw themselves as, okay, here's another fantastic accomplishment yeah. um, in the progress of humanity. I mean, that's how it's, that's how it's taught to you, right? That, yeah. like, oh, we sort of became more and more self-aware mm -hmm. as the centuries came, and now we have human rights, and mm -hmm. we're, like, at this pinnacle of human Yeah, that's how it's taught. Society, yeah. yeah. And uh, as opposed to... All this freedom allowed us to be more selfish and then to destroy. Right. And also related to that would be things like the Geneva Convention and stuff like that. Yeah. You know. Kahneman concedes that there are skeptical liberals who admit the fragility of liberal institutions and who stress the importance of secular citizenship and the need for conscious commitment to secular political arrangements in which religion is kept separate from the state. For them, myth might seem less important, but there is no doubt, she insists, that in the beginnings of what we now recognize as liberalism, the myth of nature was inspirational, and that, it, such it, and that as such it enabled great transformations to be effected. Yet now po liberal political discourse is again being exposed to attack. She thinks that liberal principles such as the universality of human rights are difficult to defend in the face of a socialized yeah. nature. For when nature is interpreted positivist, positivistically in terms of statistical norms, then different norms of behavior and sentiment can claim to be equally natural. The result, we are informed, is a crippling relativism. Okay, so a lot of this stuff is very, very deep. So, what is the overall theme of these last few paragraphs? The idea that liberalism sees itself as rational, but by having a theory of human nature, it's still endorsing myth. Because the theory of human nature is not based on anything. It's mm -hmm. literally a myth. Okay. It's a theory. 
You can say in 2017 with neuroscience, behavioral science, you know, we might have data to support things. But in this era, we're, we're not even talking about data. It's basically a bunch of white guys who had their theories of human nature. And even think of it from the perspective of, like we were saying, you know, this progress of humanity. When we have the growth of the idea of evolution, okay, that we're all starting from amoeba and becoming humans, within evolution you also have to have the idea of race. Okay? And so part of that becomes that white people are more evolved than people of color. Uh, therefore, white people are superior human beings than people of color. Therefore, white people, by evolution, are more civilized than, than people of color. Right? That's all part of the mythology. It, that's interesting. You know, it's funny because, like, sort of mid-level conservatives now, they use those logics now. Explain. Like, you know, like those trolls you see online who come at people, um, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the MAGA guys and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. This is the stuff they use when they're sort of trying to counter Black Lives Matter folks and stuff mm-hmm. online. They'll use stuff like this. And it's, it's funny because this is like the liberal thought of like, you know, 19 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, this is the stuff they use. They say, well, if you look at the data, I don't know if this is true or mm-hmm. not, but like, you know, why is it that IQ, you know, besides Asians, I think everyone else has it lower IQ than whites, you mm-hmm. know, apparently across the board or something. Mm-hmm. And so they use that as, you know, and I find that hilarious because most of them tend to be conservatives. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, like, it's an interesting shift. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, taking your point further, uh, the racists, um, throughout the, the civil rights era, uh, most of the racists were the people on the left. Yeah. yeah. Like science is, it's weird. And you oh, know, really? yeah, I mean like for much of the 20th century, I mean, so Kennedy JFK is one of the big guys who pushed, for civil rights, and he's definitely a Democrat, right? But for much of the century before him, it was the people on the left who were the big racists. Strom Thurmond was a Democrat. Remember? You don't Strom know Thurmond. Strom, Strom Thurmond? Oh, big, big. It's older than... Racist senator, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I just find it kind of funny, um, because it, it's also funny when you're talking to like people who are, you know, like... Muslims in general who are sort of being exposed to scientism and they're like, you know, they're in the nascent stages of sort of getting to that level where they're like, yeah, science, man. Mm-hmm. You know, like sort of count, trying to counter, like as this book's talking about, these myths of religion into more rational actions. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I, I look at them, I'm like, you don't really, I guess you really haven't studied it from like a sociological perspective because those guys were like, you know, even now you can see that because science, like a lot of these guys, especially these bros online, they're very much about science. They're very much like, you know, like you said, Elon Musk fans or whatever. And they're like the biggest racists ever. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, and it's, 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 it's really funny to me. I'm like, do you know, like, what mm-hmm. the history of that? Yeah, Watson, what's his name? Francis Watson, the yeah. DNA guy? Yeah. Yeah, he got Watson. in big trouble. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, what, what school was it? Like, uh, he was going to speak at it and then, like, they... They took up. it away, yeah. Yeah, because he's the DNA guy, but he was also saying all these racist things. Yeah. Um, but the point is... Sorry? I said shout out to Rosalind Franklin. It's a joke. She stole. He stole her work. They right? used her work, but they didn't give her credit. Oh really? Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. Oh. So so in any case, the point being that this is mythology that is still part of all this in a secular system, and it doesn't seem to contradict the secular system. The secular system, in theory, is trying to get rid of all mythology. Okay saying that mythology is what's messing us up, but the argument here is that, okay, we've never gotten away from mythology. We've just replaced one mythology with another. 
The defense of liberal principles in the modern world cannot, Canavan argues, be effectively carried out by making abstract arguments more rigorous, as Rawls has tried to do. This anticipates, albeit in another register, Stuart Hampshire's distrust of the use made of reason and reasonable in Rawls's exposition of political liberalism. Why should an overlapping consensus among reasonable persons about basic liberal values be either required or expected? Asks, asks Hampshire. The answer is to be found in the history of the myth of reason itself. Plato, Plato, discussing justice in the Republic, threw off the brilliant and entertaining idea that the soul is divided into three parts, just as the city-state is to be divided into three social classes. And in a just person's soul, the upper part, reason ensures harmony and stability. And in a just city, the upper class, philosophers trained in mathematics, will impose order in a well-ordered society. The corollary in ordinary and conventional speech has been that the desires and emotions of a person are, pre are supposed to issue from the quarrelsome and insubordinate underclass in the soul, and they should be left in their proper place and kept away from the serious business of self-control. The picture of human nature that has sustained liberalism from its inception, says Hampshire, is one which is in one which is one in which passion and struggle, not reason and order, are central. Thus, while Hampshire wants to do away with the myth of reason in contemporary liberal society, Canavan appeals to the reason of myth. Okay, so so he's talking about these different anthropologists, but the one of the questions becomes: All right, if one part of you is rational, and another part of you is passionate, um, which one's actually your default? Okay. Because then that will help you figure out, in theory, how to organize your society. Because if we're saying your default is rational, then there's a lot of, of things you don't need to impose in society because you just need to figure out how to make people more rational. Okay? That we will, by default, be civilized. If the default is passionate, then you're going to have to have laws in place to keep our passions under control, to keep stability. Right? And, but the bigger point that he's making is, all this is mythology. You know. What would you say the sort of the answer yeah. would that be? Um, I'd like say, I mean, I'm sorry? You were like waiting for that question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, I, would, I would say that um, the default would neither be rational nor, nor like, uh, I mean, so your default is your heart. Yeah. Okay? But your heart is not your emotions. Okay? Like in our contemporary society, we say your mind is your rational, your heart is your emotions. Mm. But I'm saying in our paradigm, your heart is also an intellect. Okay? You're, and in your heart, you have one type of longing. In your mind, you have a different type of longing. But you still also do have a body. And so I'm saying all of these are actually, even though your heart is your default of defaults, all of these are part of your defaults. Right. I was kind of thinking that, like, you know, both of them would be essentially defaults. I'm including body as well. So think of, of, of so the, the, uh, the, the longing of the heart is, you know, for, for connection, um, intimacy. The longing of the mind is, is knowledge. The longing of the body is, is also all the appetites of the body. Right? Uh. And we're saying all three of these are your defaults. Okay. It's just in one person. I mean, think of all the different personalities of all the different Sahabas. Right? One of the, uh, among the things that I find so wonderful about having such focus on the Sahabas is that they had such varying personalities. Mm. So think of Abu Bakr and then compare him to Hamza. Okay. So Hamza is a guy who he, he found his joy being in the wilderness and hunting. 
Whereas Abu Bakr um, seemed to find his joy in being on his own and just in deep reflection, right? Mm-hmm. And both of those are super sahabas. Yeah, also, like, yeah, yeah, that, that, I remember, yeah, that, I remember with Abu Bakr, I find that interesting, the fact that he was also, like, versed in genealogy and stuff. Mm. Like, I, you know, it just seems to be, like, he paints, like, a very, like you said, very human picture, a very sort of, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, that's kind of cool, mm-hmm. you know? As opposed yeah. to, like, he's this, like, crazy figure up there or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cannabis. Oh, sorry. Uh, so, so, again, the point being, then, that, your theory, your myth of human nature, or whatever you're taking as human nature to be, uh, will then help you figure out how to organize society, but it's starting from myth. Canavan mm. believes that liberalism can be defended only by recognizing and drawing openly on its great myth. For liberalism never has been an account of the world, she writes, but a project to be realized. The nature of early liberalism and the humanity of our own day may be talked about as if they already exist, but the point of talking about them is that they are still to be created. The essence of the myth of liberalism, its imaginary construction, is to assert human rights precisely because they are not built into the structure of the universe. Okay, that's also another wonderful sentence. So the essence of the myth is that you have to construct things like human rights because it's not natural. Right? It's not, I like his words, because they are not built into the structure of the universe, right? If it was there, if it was already in human nature, you would not need to talk about human rights, mm. right? Therefore, by definition, it's not part of human rights, or it's, it's not part of uh, human nature, yeah. The frightening truth concealed by the liberal myth is, therefore, that liberal principles go against the grain of human and social nature. Uh-huh. Liberalism is, that, is not a... Yeah. Liberalism is not a matter of clearing away a few accidental obstacles and allowing humanity to unfold its natural essence. It is more like making a garden in a jungle that is continually enroaching. But it is enroaching, right? Encroaching. Encroaching. But it is precisely the element of truth in the gloomy pictures of society and politics drawn by critics of liberalism that makes the project of realizing liberal principles all the more urgent. The world is a dark place which needs redemption by the light of a myth. So, so, (laughs) isn't that interesting? So, the idea of liberalism is if you shed religion, and the idea of secularism is that if you shed mythology, then you're going to have a better society. And he's saying, if you look at it in practice, no, it's literally doing the opposite. Okay. And it needs myth to, to be able to, to function and operate. And so it's effectively saying, we're going to get rid of the light and just have darkness. Yeah. So it's just, essentially, so the subtext is it's just another, another religion. But... It's not only just another religion, it's the worst of all the religions. <laughs> That's basically what it's <laughs> Could you also say, as a follow-up, could you say this is also potentially why the sheer amount of violence <coughs> that we've seen in modern societies... I don't want to say human suffering, because I feel like there's been human suffering you know, all throughout human history, but especially violence is has been perpetrated by people who are sort of, you know, they're... they're they're talking about this liberalism, you know, this sort of, you know, this idea of, like, this utopia. I think I remember... The utopia is a key word here. Yeah, I remember someone made a... I don't know if you said this, but there was a quote that always sticks with me. Of They said, basically, that, you know, always be wary of someone talking about a utopia mm. because 
because that's the perfect sort of ideal that mm -hmm. and if 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 they believe it can be reached that means they're willing to do anything to get to it yeah. because once you get there you're good yeah so anything before and, that you don't any care sacrifice about yeah any it. sacrifice mm -hmm. is worth it does that ex that explains ISIS ISIS yeah or like a lot of like Muslim uh, yeah a lot of the Khilafah movements yeah right because what Tahrir is we get there by hook or by crook and then once you're there you're in paradise right uh, it's literally that formula and so so the point being um, there's a first part to your question of course uh, the liberal violence oh yeah okay liberal. so yeah right right so yeah I do think in the history of the world, religion, yeah, religion has definitely fueled a lot of violence. I think it's tempered even more violence. I think yeah. it's cut away even more violence, yeah. right? Um, but the, the real challenge is modern religion, that modern religion, we're seeing this resurgence of these utopians in every single community. You know, us, the Jews, the Christians, mm -hmm. the Buddhists, the Hindus, mm -hmm. and, and it's like a secularized religion. Mm -hmm. So you it's think like... it's because of secularism that... So because they're coming up with these sort of utopias as an alternative. So, so the secularism is a utopia. Yeah. Okay, is a utopian outlook, and so now they're at, they're thinking to replace it with religion, but there's no depth to the religion that they're replacing it with. It's mm -hmm. literally costumes and slogans. Yeah. And and so what we're what I'm saying is that the amount of darkness that we had in the 20th century, um, if my theory is right, and I believe, and I hope I'm 100 percent wrong. Is going to be way more darkness in twenty first century, yeah. Because now you're throwing in, you know, an idea of salvation with all this. So honor is one thing, you know, where you get put in Arlington Cemetery, right? But if you add salvation to it, then you can convince fifteen year olds to go to, you know, a concert and then, you know, fire nails into a bunch of little kids, yeah, like in Manchester. Yeah. Um, would you say this is this is also, like. Um, the, these sort of movements happening is also because they're sort of pre precisely because they're sort of internalizing um, this sort of you know the great sort of dark secret of liberalism as in you know the idea that the world is a very dark place you know like it's 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 sort of like the, this undercurrent of liberalism right like where it's a very bleak outlook you know that's why we got to create this amazing thing because like reality is just very bleak and I think I think there's there's some some logic to what you're saying uh, I don't know if they consciously put it that way I think it may be a consequence Yeah just because yeah. it seems like that where like you know a lot of like you know like it, you kind of sort of I think a lot of especially kids I want to say they sort of unconsciously figure this out looking at the world and looking at like sort of the hypocrisies mm -hmm. of you know what you're told like you know in school or on the news or whatever and then you see you know, especially now with the internet, I feel like with, you know, you kind of, like, become, that just gives it to you, like, straight, like, you mm -hmm. know, just, like, the absolute horrors that are happening in societies that claim to be paragorns of human rights and all of this stuff. So I think, like, you know, they kind of, like, this is why they go to this, these things as well, is just because, like, hey, like, I can create that utopia and I can get salvation yes. at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And somewhere in there, you have the notion that these people that you're genociding are not human beings. Yeah. Right? The liberal, proje the liberal project of redemption in a world of injustice and suffering that Canavan urges us to recognize in mythic terms allows, one allows once again the sacred character of humanity to be affirmed and the liberal project re-empowered. It permits the politics of certainty to be restored and then retrieves the language of prophecy for politics in place of moral relativism. 
Thus, what has often been described as the political exclusion of women, the propertyless, the uh, colonial subjects, in liberalism's history can be re-described as the gradual extension of liberalism's incomplete project of u universal emancipation. Okay, so explain it. What is he saying? Yeah, I love this. This is a really great question. <laughs> no, I can't he's, even. He's just tearing you in? Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, I mean, he's essentially saying, like, hey, this just allows us to sort of say, the, hey, the project's not done. Yeah. It's just a re, it's redoing the narrative. It was like, oh, uh -huh. yeah, we didn't mean to colonize and enslave you. We just weren't finished giving you your rights. Yeah. Like, yeah. It just hadn't reached you yet. Mm -hmm. There's some trickle-down economics. Like, we're not, yeah, it's like, <laughs> please, like, we're, like, it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, we're not, we, we didn't finish with the project either, you know. No, it's, like, it's you know, as, if, like, as if, like, so those things, like, those subjugations weren't tied to liberalism either, mm -hmm. right? Like, if that didn't happen in a liberal society, then what is it a product of, mm -hmm. right? Like, so basically, it's like, it allows you to wash your hands mm. of the destruction that you've caused. Right. Right. And, and so, it's, I think... Yeah. I want to say it's even more, like, the way he phrases it, it's like even more insulting than saying, like, I, I want to sort of go against it now and say, yeah. this is not because of liberalism, mm -hmm. because it's even more ins insulting because you're saying, hey, it is, we're responsible for this, we did do this, but that's because we weren't all fully there yeah, yet. Yeah, we're like, even better, yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah, just I think like, the point that you both are making are, are not in disagreement with each yeah, other. Yeah, you know, so. It's just so, like... Uh -huh. So, yeah, thus what has often been described as political exclusion of women, the propertyless colonial subjects in liberalism's history, can be re-described as the gradual extension of liberalism's incomplete project of universal emancipation. So it's like we're getting there. We're getting closer and closer to universal emancipation. Um, but there's going to be a whole lot, of, whole lot of dead, oppressed bodies along the way. But we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. yeah that's that's uh, I can't, like, That's... Yeah. Even though so much shade in his like just normal description of yeah. things, I'm like, you can do that when you're smart. Yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> He's like, oh, this is just a description. The image Canavan employs to present and defend liberalism is striking, making a garden in a jungle that is continually encroaching, and a world that is a dark, dark place which needs redemption by the light of a myth. This image is not only an invitation to adopt a mythic approach; it is already part of the myth. It fixes on, explains, and justifies the violence lying at the heart of a political doctrine that has disavowed violence on principle. That is not to say, incidentally, that this violence is intrinsically mysterious, mystifying, convoluting, plain scary, mythical, and a sign of the existence of the gods, as Tosig has proposed. The liberal violence to which I refer, as opposed to the violence of illiberal regimes, is translucent. It is the violence of universali universalizing reason itself. For to make an enlightened space, the liberal must continually attack the darkness outside of the outside of the outside world that threatens to overwhelm that space. Uh -huh. Not only must that outside therefore be conquered, but in the garden itself there will always be weeds to be destroyed and unruly branches to be cut off. So what are we saying here? That basically uh, liberalism is just as conservative as the conservatism that it attacks, right? That it, this is the way, and it's part of that utopian thinking, like you guys brought up, mashallah, that, um, that it forces reason to be universalized, which means what? It means it's forcing everyone to regard everyone as the same, it's, and these ideas are the most superior. So if I'm reading this right, uh, 
is this also sort of like like when France colonized places, right? Like they went on a civilizing mission. Yeah, that's every that, every that empire. Was, right, so that's sort of what he's talking about. So like we're going to bring French values, yes. and liberal ideas to these savages, yeah. and like yeah. So the fact that we've won means we're superior. Yeah. So we should make you like me. So where Britain would go, it would set up a British style system. Where France would go, it would make a secular, you know, democracy ish. Uh, where we go, we are establishing our own style of democracy. And that's what we're saying. We're tra- you will be better if you're more like us. The fact that you've lost means that, you know, there's something wrong with your system. Mm. Right? And, and that's, yeah, look at all the history of all the colonized nations. That's, uh, you know, in the former French colonies, it's Napoleonic Code as opposed to English common law. Saudi Arabia has a big part of it. Its law system is English common law. Right? And Can that's you Saudi that Arabia. <laughs> Yeah, I probably will, you know. Um, and so, so the point being that uh, um, that's, you know, part of the idea of, you know, this project of utopianism is to civilize the whole world, which literally means make the whole world be like us. You know... From the philosophical perspective. Just, yeah. this, this, this might not, is, it's not as related, but I thought of it, because, yeah. like, uh, you know, it's funny you said that. I was talking to a, a younger kid, and he was telling me, like, you know, Saudi Arabia is the closest thing to the expression of Islam as a social yeah, enterprise. And yeah. I was like, no, it's not. Yeah. It's not even... And, like, the fact that you said that just makes me chuckle, because yeah. I'm like... Yeah, so Islam is very close to English common law. Yeah, like yeah. what does that mean? It's, like, I mean, look at its government. It's a uh, Henry the Eighth era monarchy with a state religion. So instead of the Anglican Church, it's you know people don't like the term, but it's Wahhabi Islam. I mean, it's the same structure, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, so the point being that um, uh, that it is this process of trying to utopify the whole rest of the world. Um, isn't that also our history? Yeah. The history of our empires. I, what I found more 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 poignant <laughs> about that statement he he, <coughs> he wrote is the fact that there will be weeds in the garden mm-hmm. and branches that come off because I mean that is the exact like language that that's being used now to describe Muslims in Western societies. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. I mean it's you in the UK like you guys need to reform ourselves. Today um just today I think uh you know the UK has that party UKIP they're like they're sort of like this very super right party that wants oh, everyone out. Those are the guys that want to do the suicide bombing. They want to give the death penalty to suicide bombers. Yeah, right. Who are already dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they they we're actually having a debate in Chicago leadership. So I posted this article, uh-huh. right, and then and I was kind of pointing out how absurd this is, and then someone else jumped in saying, "No, I disagree. Suicide bombers should be punished to the furthest extent of the law, even if they make doba. It doesn't matter, right." And then someone else jumps in saying, well, no, in an Islamic system, the family of the victim can decide. And then I, have to respond, then I responded by saying, how are you going to prosecute somebody who's dead? You guys are missing the whole point here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. No, but like, I, so they wrote this, I mean, it was just absolutely just like obtuse document of what they want, right? And they're like talking about how like, you know, we're going to ban the niqab because these women... They're being oppressed and this and that and even they even said something like you know they they won't they they don't get proper vitamin D. Because they're <laughs> 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 
stupid. Well, I swear the dude might be onto something though. I got a vitamin D deficiency. Oh really? From wearing the cob your whole life? Yeah. No, but it's just it was so like it's all it's the beard, you know. Uh, yeah. It was so funny, but anyway, just that seems to be so much of not only the government itself, but like, you know, again, because on Twitter, you just see like normal people just talking about this stuff, you know, and it's, it's the same thing. Like, you know, there's that note, what's his name wrote? Marissi, the musician from the Smiths. Oh, yeah. What'd he say? Yeah. And he, it's the same thing. Like, he's just like, oh, the mayor of London hasn't condemned these. Oh, yeah. You're talking about You know, that, like, yeah. but like, it's just this very like, hey... You know, you guys are savage just because you're not like us. It's a simple. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. It's all it is. And I just find it like utterly hilarious and funny. You know, another to give you another example is you know like like two days ago when Trump and his wife were in Saudi Arabia, everyone, all the Republicans, were like, hey, she didn't cover herself, yeah. she didn't do anything, and then no one's saying that anything about the fact that when she was with the Pope, she mm-hmm. had on the like. Well, you have. It's funny because you have to with the Pope. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. And I just find it... I'm missing, I'm missing the point of this part of the... No, what I'm saying is, like... Like, they're not... You know, like, they, they don't say anything to her about covering when the... At the Pope, at, you know, in the Vatican. Because he's one of theirs. Yeah, yeah, and I just find it, like, wait, do you do you mm-hmm. not see, like, the freaking... Yeah, of course, of course. Like, utter hypocrisy of that? Yeah, and that's why, you know, that's why you gotta love the new Pope, like, you know... Like, you saw that one, or did one of you guys post, like, you know, about, like, here's a photo of the Pope smiling, here's a photo of the Pope yeah. smiling, here's a photo of the Pope smiling, 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 next to Donald Trump smiling his way, yeah. I mean, he wasn't even a smile, that that was not even, like, a neutral, well, it was a that frown. was a yes. frown. They did a Larry David thing, uh, mm. a, it's like a video, it's like a Curb Your Enthusiasm, like, uh-huh. play on it. So they play that. Can I just show you right now? Uh, show me after a page show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, is that with uh, Trump in the his hand t- trying to touch the Pope? No, no, no. Oh, okay. They're both standing, and then they play the music at the end. Oh, okay, okay, I get yeah, it. You'll see. see. I'll show you. Um, and there was yeah. And what else is great is like Trump gives. What does Trump give the Pope as a gift? The writings of Dr. King. Like seriously, man, you actually do really? Yeah. yeah. But wow. what did the Pope give to Trump? That's hilarious. He gave he, the, the climate change. Yeah, right? he gave Laudato Si, which is all about climate change, and we have to take care of the world and all that. Wow, <laughs> man, the Pope is a real one. He's, He's awesome. Man. He, like he won't even smile next to yeah. the man. He was just like, yeah. Okay, let's continue. Liberalism is not merely the passion of civility, as Hampshire and others have asserted. It claims the right to exercise power through the threat and use of violence when it redeems the world and punishes the recalcitrant. So there it is right there, right? Liberalism is not merely the passion of civility. Mm. No, it claims a right to coerce violently. That's liberalism. There is no fatality in all this, as Adorno and Horkheimer, have, and Horkheimer claimed. No necessary unfolding of an enlightened essence. It is just the way some liberals have argued and acted. Yeah, I mean, think of, I mean, this is this is the whole Obama presidency, right? Um, he he is viewed by his supporters as this person who's so civil, so charismatic, family life, the whole night, the whole nine yards, and. You know, but he does not hesitate to drop bombs, even if it means you know collateral damage. Does not hesitate to drop drones. You know, this. I mean, he's the embodiment of what we're seeing in this book. Yeah. I'm noticing the staring. That <laughs> continue. The liberal political scientist and Middle East specialist, specialist Leonard Binder, 
reaches the same conclusion about the necessity of violence as Canavan, but he does so through an explicit set of propositions about the possibilities and limits of rational discourse, apparently not through the invocation of myth. 1. Liberal government is the product of a continuous process of rational discourse. 2. Rational discourses Discourse is possible even among those who do not share the same culture nor the same consciousness. 3. Rational discourse can produce mutual understanding and cultural consensus, as well as agreement on particulars. 4. Consensus permits stable political arrangements and is the rational basis of the choice of coherent political strat strategies. Rational strategic choice, or five, rational strategic choice is the basis of improving the human condition through collective action. 6. Political liberalism, in this sense, is indivisible. It will either prevail worldwide, or it will have to be defended by non-discursive action. Okay, keep going. I mean, but, so these are basically... So he's trying to lay out some of the, like, the actual uh, pillars of liberaliz liberalism that are separate from myth. So, one, it is an ongoing process of rational discourse. The emphasis being on the rational as opposed to the romantic, as opposed to the scriptural, rational. Yeah. Number two, rational discourse is even possible among those who do not share the same culture. So, that I mean, that's pretty straightforward, right? That everyone, uh, even if they don't have the same outlook as you, you can still do this rational discourse, okay? Which means you can apply it to other cultures. Mm. Number three, rational discourse can produce mutual understanding and cultural consensus, as well as agreement on particulars. What do you think about that? Number three, rational discourse can produce mutual understanding and cultural consensus as well as agreement on particulars. I think I, that's fair. Yeah, I think so. I think it's very yeah. fair. Yeah. You really want to say something? Yeah. I think yeah. that's just, if you see sort of successful societies mm -hmm. in history, they've been the best at this, I mm -hmm. think, you know? And I'm thinking more of like, you know, Muslim societies also. You know, America, to some extent, you could say, despite its, mm -hmm. like obviously overwhelming violence towards minorities and mm -hmm. stuff is better than, you know, certain other societies mm -hmm. you could speak of. Mm -hmm. So I think relatively the, you know, the better societies of history have, have been good at this, mm -hmm. you know, sort of negotiating those particulars. And so this goes back to the question, you know, didn't we in our history do the same thing? So when we look at the era after the Prophet, peace be upon him, what are the theories for why Islam grew as rapidly as it did? Or why did the realms of Islam grow as rapidly as they did was because they actually didn't change the societies of the people, right? Their targets were the people in power, mm -hmm. okay? And that's who they went against. And to the point that the, the, the Muslim fighters and the, the Muslim settlers were not even allowed to uh, live in those societies. You know, they lived in, you know, what we call Amsar garrison towns nearby. Of course, many of those garrison towns eventually became the big towns. Yeah. So Cairo was a garrison town. Al-Qahira, Fustat was the actual town. Oh. So if you go to Cairo, you'll see a place, Old Cairo, which was Fustat. Um, and, and so nearby is where the Muslims were staying. And I believe they could go in for, for trade. Um, that was the extent of it. Yeah. But <coughs> the point is that they didn't mess around with the people's lives. And then on top of that, essentially, it's this type of cordial... Uh, interaction, business interaction, and such, right? So, is this true for the other empires? I can't say the same for the other empires, though. Uh, yes, and yes. Yeah. I was that's that's funny you said that. I was like the other empires thing. I was actually reading this thing today about um, 
there's this historian who wrote a book on Aurangzeb, and she's being like, oh, like a new book, right? Yeah, and she's being like destroyed by yeah. Indians, you know, on all sorts of mm-hmm. names, everything. But like, that's funny. She mentions Aurangzeb, who's considered historically to be one of the most sort of Straight. anti the yeah. you know like these principles yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, she says actually he was just fine like he was actually great like in you know they talk about how he destroyed there's this myth in India that he destroyed hundreds of thousands of mosques they said mm-hmm. he probably the most he destroyed were like two dozen and yeah. they were all political mosques or Hindu temples I'm sorry temples temples yeah. they were all they were all political as far as he was just trying to like he was fighting against the kings but my, like but just thinking of not only him but just going up to the Mughals I think even they yeah they might not be as good as like the Muslims of, of, of yesteryear or the mm-hmm. heyday like, they were, I think they were, in, in terms of this, I think they were great. Like, compared to, like, modern societies you talk about, mm-hmm. they, I mean, the very fact that, you know, Hindu culture is present and alive and very much, like, flourishing today, give, you mm-hmm. know, tells you that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they, like, you know, all, the, especially, I think India could be a case study for that, where, like, we just have so many different varieties of faiths, cultures, you know, different, you know, tribes, whatever you want to say, and, you know... Stereotypically, you have this like empire that was supposed to be doing all these things according to the you know the current Indian national myth, right? But like, actually, like they did a pretty you know okay <coughs> job compared to like you know other you know you could compare to other societies. So you're saying basically that they weren't monsters like the way that they're being portrayed. Not at all. They probably had all the good and bad that goes with empires, but yeah. they still had a lot of good. Yeah. So, yeah. It's it's also another point to make. She talks about how you know how you were talking about how like modern. Like these modern myths are coming into play. She mm-hmm. talks about how like Aurangzeb actually, if you look at historically, wasn't seen a certain type of way until like the past hundred fifty years. Interesting, yeah. You know, and Makes sense. yeah, and she it's, it, and she's saying like essentially now all it is is just hey, we're trying to promote India as this Hindu nation as opposed that to this was, nation. That was the guy who came up with Dinilahi. No, no, Akbar is the one. Yeah, Akbar is the one that uh, that people often love. Yeah, you know because he's presented as someone who's very very inclusive. Yeah, and Aurangzeb is often presented as his villain, who's presented as this guy who's trying to force, you know, trying to assert Islam on the entire society. Uh, it's like pre yeah. Wahhabi, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then, what else? Um, consensus permits stable political arrangements and is the rational basis of the choice of coherent political strategies. I mean, that seems on the surface like it makes sense. That also seems kind of like. Honestly, about that seems kind of Islamic in terms of some. You know, you get that advice to. I think we're told to like. Shura. Say, yeah, sure. That's what that reminds me of. Rational strategic choice is the basis of improving the human condition through collective action. Here, uh, on the surface, I think it makes sense, um, unless it's excluding religion. Mm. Right. Political liberalism, in this sense, is indivisible. It will either prevail worldwide. <coughs> Or we'll have to def- uh, defend by non-discursive action, meaning non-discourse. You know, uh, that last sentence, it makes, it nev- I never got why, like, the seculars in Turkey or Egypt would uh, have, like, coups, right, and overthrow democratically. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how is that secular? But mm-hmm. now it makes a lot more sense. Why? Because they're, because it's not about, it's not about democracy, per se. It's about protecting a liberal society and a liberal value. Yeah, according to our and vision so, of liberal, yeah. Exactly. So if that means taking violence and going against a democratic process, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Because that's just removing some weeds mm-hmm. and, like, uh, 
protecting like mm -hmm. this sort of project. I was reading this this uh, point ninety three mm -hmm. uh, in the book. It was pretty interesting because he was talking about how uh, like the footnote. Yeah, the footnote, and he's talking about uh, the the British like talking about how like they're putting the seed of like civilization into Egypt, mm -hmm. right? And the past seeds. Oh, ninety six. Ninety six. Yeah. Oh, ninety six. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah ninety six. And like before. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the, the, what was planted in Egypt before didn't bear anything real. It was mm -hmm. just like shrubs. And now we sort of put something good. Yeah, I mean, look at, look at how the Brits, after the French, set up Egypt and how they set up India. You have, I mean, it's not a coincidence that both countries have this super established ro railroad system, which is a direct uh, structuring of the economy. They both have very, very big uh, cinema industries, right? I yeah. mean, this is this is not just mere coincidence. This is mm. this is design, right? That, no, that that movie one got me. I didn't even know. Yeah, that I well. didn't even pick up on that. That wow. makes so much sense because Egypt's the center for like the Arab world. And yeah, Hollywood's a huge. Scene. Yeah, yeah. This is this is this is not coincidence. And I made the point before, right? Like how how did the Brits the Brits set up uh, India? Um, you have Muslim state to the left, Muslim state to the right, Hindu state in the middle, right? How do they set up Israel? You have Muslim state to the left, Muslim state to the right, and then you have the Jewish state in the middle. And what do you do? You're keeping people divided, right? So the land yeah. remains contested. This is this is not coincidence. No, right? that, that I mean I yeah I mean the political thing, but that movie thing was just that's so like it just I mean for me it's just like yeah, the, you the think fighting was like obvious. Yeah, you think about that politically, but that's so subversive. Because the uh -huh. movie thing is part of like it's, it's seen as part of the culture. It's seen as it, inherent. Yeah, Bollywood looks like something you can't separate from India. Yeah, and it's constructed. Yeah, by Stop the Brits. It. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's cool. literally constructed by the Brits. Yeah. I just want to like destroy some Bollywood lover with this. Yeah. <laughs> and, <he's> not, <laughs> like, you <laughs> and then and same thing with with Egypt. Yeah, yeah. That you know because it's funny to me because it's such a point of pride. Yeah. For people, I mean, mm -hmm. amongst liberals, man, amongst like uh -huh. liberals of those nations, and yeah. that's a huge pride. Because it's not a religious thing. It's like yeah, know. but what is it? It is a perpetuation of mythology. This that this reminds me of that remember I told you about that that sister who had that conversation with Mohammed Fadl where she yeah, was trying to say is uh, Egypt is this amazing uh -huh. you know so and so yeah, society you know and he was just like yeah it isn't really you know and he just totally just when she said, when, you know what was crazy is when she said like they were talking about Islam in Egypt mm -hmm. and Islam, said, is Egypt is an Islamic society yeah and he said Islam left Egypt a long time ago <laughs> and she was like how could you say that people pray do this and yeah. he was like. And he was like, I'm not saying individually, like, people are, yeah. are Muslim or they're not. I'm not trying to say that. He was like, but as a, as a, he was like, where is a concept of public good? Yeah. Right? He's like, are traffic laws mm -hmm. obeyed? Are mm -hmm. people, right, right, yeah. are people doing things like, you know, thinking about the public good? And he's like, if they're not, he's like, then Islam as a, uh, as a societal enterprise is gone. Mm -hmm. Right? Because yeah. if that's, it's not there as a society, if you're not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's a very deep point because... I mean, I don't think that's unique to Egypt, mm -hmm. right? I yeah, think that's, that's throughout the Muslim seems world. Seems like everywhere, yeah. Even, even in the diaspora in, in here, like, you know, people don't, it, it's not, people don't think of, like, public good, mm -hmm. right? It's like... They think of Muslim good. Yeah, they think mm -hmm. of Muslim good, and they're like, get what you can, take what you can. Mm -hmm. like, it's, there's no essence of, like, a social contract mm -hmm. or, like, trying to improve society. Mm -hmm. Unless you're trying to make it very Islamic, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the only time where, like, I feel like Muslims will be like, yeah, we're going to do that, no. or we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. like, 
Yeah, and her the language she used that I'm like you know being struck by it now was very much this myth of this lib you know and just just sort of you know study the history and find out it's like a lot of that is the especially infrastructure and stuff like that mm -hmm. and he kind of came he kind of addressed that point too he said if you look at both of these countries I think he was talking about India it's funny South he was talking Korea, about he talked about South Korea. Yeah, South Korea is a comparison, right? He said they both came out of World War Two or something. Yeah, with similar sort of statistics. Okay. Yeah, right. and he's like, you compare them now, like you say, you know, some economically the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. He's like, where is South Korea? Where is Egypt? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so he's saying South Korea is in much better shape. That's what he's saying. That's yeah. what he's saying, and yeah. you know, because she was trying to say, oh, we're this and that, and you know, for me, it's it's, it's just interesting. He, he to see. was coming at at like her the mythology that was being talked about with Egypt, yeah. like how it's this great, it's this amazing society and like this, and he was like how is it amazing right mm -hmm. like that was the point mm -hmm. he brought up to say like he was trying to because she did speak in a mythical way yeah yeah, that, yeah, right? yeah like yeah. Um, it was funny too because she's coming from this sort of again uh, it seems to be like a more liberal point mm -hmm. where you know again you're what you're taught is oh this is the rational discourse yeah. this isn't a you know or you know it's empiricist it's rational it's da 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 mm -hmm. But it's very much like you're talking about it, like you know, like a Daisy, Daisy, you know, from the uh, from India talks about Saudi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, oh my God, it's so great. Yeah. I've been there. It's like yeah, you know, exactly. hey, just because they have flushing toilets doesn't mean they're like the greatest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, right. That's how Daisy's talk about yeah. it. In or India. like when Daisy's go to Dubai. Yeah. Right. Not you know, mentioning the fact that their own countrymen were the slave labor. Yeah. 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 It's insane. Um. My one o'clock, I don't know if my one o'clock is here. Uh, okay, let's try to get through this, this section, shall we? There's someone on the couch. I don't oh, there is? Hold on, let me, let me pause this. So we're, we're stopping at the top of page 61, the, the first full paragraph. No, 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 we're still, yeah, but what kind of an... Okay. We'll start, let's just start with point six, right? Okay, we'll start with point six next time, inshallah. Yeah. All right, subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastakfiru kanatubu ilayk, wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahir.